0: Major Lindsay in Africa presents Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession.
1: Welcome to Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. This is our 23rd or 24th episode, and today we're going to take a different tact. I'm Mark Yakino, your host. I'm a managing director with Major Lindsay in Africa, the sponsor of this po- podcast. My guest today is Brad Baum, who is a venture capitalist and an investor. And today we're going to talk about something a little different, which is the evolution of technology into the field of mental health and how technology investments are fueling advantages, treatment modalities and other ways of approaching the mental health issue. it's an area that's growing and it is certainly um, something that is worth talking about. So Brad, I'm going to give you the opportunity to introduce yourself because you're your own best MC. Mm-hmm. Sure, uh, I'll, I'll keep it
0: uh, pretty brief, but I just want to say up front, thanks so so much for having me and and thank you for for being a voice for for this topic. I think it's incredibly important and and not enough people are talking about it and so when you reached out um, I was super excited to, to join and so so thank you very much for having me on, on myself I was born and raised in a suburb of Detroit uh, ended up going to to University of Michigan for for undergrad um, have a fun fact here have a have a twin brother who's also at U of M now in, in law school and so when, when you'd reached out this was particularly of interest to me given some of the discussion I'd recently had with with Daniel my, my twin brother um, and and joined LightBank uh, about two years ago now. And, and what LightBank does is we're, we're an early stage venture capital firm. And what that means is we look to partner with great founders uh, across the United States because we're, we're geographically agnostic and we invest in, in their startups. Um, the, the idea is to, to isolate really strong founders who want to build really great companies and support them along the way so we, we write meaningful checks to, to do that and then support our, our founders. And that's kind of the, the deal with Light Bank.
1: That is, that is terrific. And I know that Light Bank has made some investments in um, technology companies related to mental health. Can you give, just give kind of some examples before we <clears throat> dig in?
0: Yeah, no, I'm happy to. I was really excited that just a few months after I joined the team, we made our investment into a company called Blueprint, um, a a company I have a a ton of respect for. One, because they're working on something tremendously important. Two, because the founder, in in my opinion, is is doing this for a reason and is just a, excuse my language, a badass entrepreneur. Um, And so I'm super excited that we have the opportunity to back them and support them. And and what they do is, is Blueprint works um, to, to increase something called measurement-based care, you can kind of think of that as, as data-driven care. And so there's plenty of great companies working on the problem of we need to increase access for folks to to mental health uh, coverage and, and, and clinics and um, access to care. That's, that's a term like totally respect and think that's a super important problem to be working on. What, what Danny and his team at Blueprint are working on is once you receive that care, we want to optimize it and make it the most efficient care possible and then start to isolate who are the best practitioners in this space um, and, and you know, form best practices. And so what they do is enable clinicians to track how their patients are progressing uh, while they're not in session. So pre-COVID, you're, you're at your therapist, if you could afford it, two, three times a a month. And all that time in between there, that was life. That was when you were, you know, experiencing whatever the the problem set or or whatever you're working through. Um, And and Blueprint serves as a mechanism or a conduit for clinicians to have access to the data. Um, So how are you doing day in, day out? How are you responding to treatment? And so they administer something called a PHQ-9, which is a standard depression screening um, on behalf of the clinician to their client or to their, to their patient, and then feed that data back to the clinician so that they can make informed decisions. And and the goal there is to really improve outcomes of, of care. And so they're they're off to the races and, and doing that well. And so we're excited to continue supporting them.
1: So is the data acquisition with following patient care something that happens on a, a, a weekly or some type of cycle in between therapy sessions? What's the what's the data collection method? Yeah, no, it's a phenomenal to provide clinicians with some actionable information. <clears throat>
0: It's a, it's a great question. And, and so the, as I understand it, it's actually a nonstop tracking of data. Um, so they can, so a clinician can actually enable blueprint to track things like sleep and a, and a variety of other health factors that your iPhone is is tracking already and can plug into that. And, and they have different levers they can uh, pull and push to, to track in real time. Um, I don't know that they're getting the reports in real time. I think the reports are coming to them at some sort of weekly, um, if not biweekly cadence, but the, day, the, the, the premise there is that there's a constant stream of data that maps the, the, the patient's entire experience. And so every day you're checking in with Blueprint or every uh, week, you know, whatever you're comfortable with as a patient, obviously the more data the better.
1: So you're actually operationalizing some of the devices we wear every day and the data they're gathering.
0: Absolutely, that, and that's, yeah. So, so it started with the PHQ-9, Um, And then it was the the no brainer next move was to layer in as much data to inform the decision-making the clinician as possible.
1: Interesting. And how long has blueprint been at it?
0: They've been at it about two years now in, in in market coming up on probably Um, they're off to the races and have some, have some really big relationships in the pipeline and have kind of scaled from independent, you know, solo practitioners all the way up to you know, hundred thousand patient clinics. And so, um, it's, been, it's been a pleasure to see the, the concepts
1: fascinating and the idea of a continuous data stream on everything from emotions to breathing to respiratory rate to, to sleep and degree of sleep rem sleep um, level of activity it, 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 and to be able to draw conclusions from it is great do you know the blueprint had to work through any privacy issues or cyber issues
0: yeah, I think that was a, a area of concern, let's call it, from clinicians, rightfully so, um, in the early days. And, and and I think Blueprint has spent an incredible amount of time and, and thought into how can we ensure that we're protecting um, and encrypting the data that we are, we're, we're given access to. And so I know that they've implemented a variety of measures in order to do that. Um, and, and I guess I'd have to defer to, to Danny on the specifics there, um, but but they are working very, very closely with the clinicians to ensure that, you know, this HIPAA compliant data is
1: not mistreated or misused. Well, this is, uh, this is really fascinating. Um, it's definitely something I'm gonna to talk to with my therapist um, <laughs> who's always looking for interesting ways to gauge patient progress. Oh yeah. Now, one of the things that, um, I wanted to ask you about because I think it's important. Is where do you see technology playing a evolving role in, in addressing mental health issues beyond just sort of data acquisition? Um, we talked about you know when you and I did our prep work, we talked about basically you know, kind of the verticalization of mental health. And and I, I'd like you to sort of explain that to our listeners and explain how you see that impacting both the investment um, environment for mental health related tech, but how you see that manifesting in terms of outcomes for patients. Yeah, no,
0: I'm, I'm happy to, to talk about that. Um, and, and I do just want to say up front, it's my two cents, right? Like my, my hypotheses could be wrong. Um, Hopefully, maybe they're right. Some of them are right, some of them wrong. But um, I want to put that out there um, because I think this is an evolving space. And just to say you know it all is is probably not true um, for for most folks, at least. But um, yeah, I think tech's going to play a massive, massive role in in the mental health um, realm. I think it already is. Um, I think this is not a, a negative judgment. I think it's just a realistic calling out that many clinicians in today's world are not the most tech savvy folk. And so I think as you've seen throughout society in general, like as tech starts to infiltrate any given industry, you find efficiencies and optimizations and and, and generally speaking, things just get better. Um, Obviously there are caveats to that and and negatives associated with tech, but but on the whole. And so I'm I'm absolutely pumped to to see all the different innovation that we've already seen and continue to see in, in the space. And I think in my mind, at least, you can break it out into a few different buckets, and you could probably sub subcategorize it even further. I know I did in, in the piece that, that uh, you had read that in, in my buddy Patrick wrote, um, but the kind of the core buckets in, in my mind are, one, like just generalized telehealth, and so matching in with clinicians, you know, they're there are plenty of companies you know, in, in this space. There's the helps which I'm sure you've seen ads for, the talk spaces where Michael Phelps is a is a um, advocate for, for that one. Uh, Able to Ayana, Better Up, etc. I could go on and on. Um, and, and those are great. And, and so those just are pretty classic telehealth offerings for folks who, who want help on a variety of, of mental health issues. Um, you have your you're sort of measurement and testing company, so you're like your blueprints of the world, um, and there there are a fair amount of folks in, in that space. Everyone has a different different angle. Um, you've got digital therapeutics. You've got um, employer route. So you've got folks who are specifically going through in, employers in order to to uh, access employees and care for for their mental health. And so that's really a distribution channel difference. And um, and then you have a, a ton of folks in the self-service space. You know, the ones that most people seem to know are, are the head spaces and columns of the world. Um, right. there, there are quite a few, and I think more and more are popping up. Um, and, and I think, you know, utilizing a combination of them can, can often be the best outcome for folks. Obviously, it's a, a, a very personal decision. Um, and, and that said, there's nothing wrong with going and sitting in person uh, post-COVID, hopefully, with a clinician
1: and, and getting that kind of care. I think one of the things that's been interesting with the pandemic is that we've seen clinicians that wouldn't categorize themselves as tech savvy very quickly find secure ways to mobilize telemedicine and to effectively um, conduct therapy sessions via uh, telemedicine either Zoom or Chiron or, or, or some other modality. One of the things that fascinates me, and, and it really came out of um, a podcast I listened to, um, podcast host was a woman named Mary Kate Hurlbut, And she had a colleague of uh, a former college, um, former college um, classmate from Stanford who started Two Chairs Therapy. Mm, sure. And the idea, is there an idea that you can use artificial intelligence and, and, and some, some measure of robotic process uh, automation to intake information, apply algorithms to help with the potential pool of clinician matches? What I mean by that is I think most people will, um, Find that finding the clinician. Let's say let's stick with a psychologist or a, sure. a licensed social worker, a, a frontline therapist, as opposed to a psychiatric um, a psych, psychiatrist. We'll see they'll go to psychology today, or they'll go to you know the 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 website of their local large health systems, the Bon Secours, the HCA's, mm-hmm. and they'll look at all of these profiles of, of doctors but they really won't know anything about them. They really won't have any way to gauge whether there's compatibility with their personalities or potential compatibility. They won't exactly have a way to access them. So yep. for instance, you know, using perhaps some sort of automation you know, that asks screening questions and, and provides mm-hmm. inputs and runs it through some type of process, an algorithm or some type of process to help you narrow down what is a more likely than not set of potential clinicians. Sure. To with you.
0: There's a few folks who come to mind as far as founders and, and companies working on, on that problem set. And I think it's a, it's a massive problem set. I think, um, the the fact that it's 2021 now and the core methodology for identifying your, your clinician is going through psychology today, which is, less than optimal for, for many reasons, um, or going to your, your payer system, like I'm on uh, blue cross blue shield. And I, I go there and I look for, for clinicians and 85% aren't taking new patients. The ones who like, it's, it's a, an old, it looks like Craigslist for, for, you know, clinician identification. And so I think there's so much work to be done in, in that very piece, um, because if something's, already stigmatized and hard to to gain access to you know just by way of stigma and and cost etc for the process for identification to then be also flawed or also you know there's a barrier there and not smooth is just makes it that much less likely that that folks who need care are going to get care and so i think um I think there it needs to resemble more of of like in in my mind, and again, this might be the wrong outlook on it. But in my mind, getting matched with a clinician, is much like dating. Like I want to find. Just about some- to say that <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, um, average minds think alike. I guess. Yes. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> so true. There you go. They um the the idea there is like. Well, if I'm going to find someone I'm going to go to and, and be really intimate, really personal, share kind of things I wouldn't with, with most folks, that's got to be someone I, I can't think of a better word than just vibe with. Someone who I feel like, you know, appreciates my energy. I appreciate theirs. You know, they they push me in the right ways. They pull me in the right ways. And the likelihood that you walk into the bar and the first guy or girl you see is is the one is is pretty low. And so, I think there needs to be, you know, optionalities and, and, and ways to, in, in a way, and I don't want to make the direct parallel to like a Tinder or Hinge or, or whatever it might be, that, you know, the dating apps, but I think there's needs to be a way to test out clinicians in a, in a relatively quick manner. Um, the reality is that clinicians shouldn't be wanting to treat you if they don't quote vibe with you. If you're not the most, you know, optimal patient for, for them, um, I, I think you, you want to find matches all around for, if you want to look at outcomes and it, the fact that, you know, you go on psychology today and, and I apologize. I'm ranting here, but I've been through the experience. You know, you go Psych today, you email someone from there. They respond three days later. Um, they let you know that they might be able to squeeze you in, in three and a half weeks. And then you wait back and forth. You, you then go in, you sign a bunch of paperwork and, and, you know, HIPAA compliant things and, and, you sit in their waiting room. They come see you. What if 10 minutes in, you know, I, I'm a believer in, like, you can judge whether you're vibing with someone relatively quickly. 10 minutes in, you're like, oh, my gosh, this is the worst. This person does not get me. Like, they're not. We do, What he says or she says does not resonate. I just know we're not going to hit it off. The likelihood that then you're going to go back to psych today, the next week, and restart that sometimes multi-week process, I think is, is low. And I think there's plenty of people who get caught in that unfortunate um cycle, if you want to call it that. And and that's why I'm
1: asking about, you know, thoughts on the investment potential and things that are happening with respect to, I won't say access of care, that's a whole separate issue, but selection mm -hmm. of care, because there are stories, and I know somewhat from experience, although I've been lucky to have a a better set of circumstances where I had access to care providers, it could be a six-month Enterprise define the right therapist, and if you live in a city like New York City, where virtually none of the therapists take insurance, (laughs) or even if you go to a psychiatrist for medication management, their rate is seven hundred and fifty dollars an hour, and they can see you in three weeks. We all know that that's that's not even um, that's not even an exercise someone could endure for six months. You can't do six, $750 an hour appointments in hopes of hitting the jackpot. No, so,
0: and, and yeah, most people can't afford that to even begin in one session. The average person cannot, that's not even within the realm of possibility for, for most people. And mental health does not discriminate against socioeconomic status. So I think that's flawed.
1: And I think the, 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 the other issue is, is that you're not getting it, you're not even in the minimum getting triage for, for what could be compelling services, compelling needs that drive you to seek a therapist in the first place. Absolutely.
0: Um, and, and I do want to touch on your, your point about, you know, AI applications within that. I don't know of AI applications specifically within the, the, the clinician matching element of things, um, although maybe there are some that, that I hope to, to find out about if, if folks are working on it. Um, but I will quickly call out, and, and generally call out, because I'm not in the weeds. But um, our one of our portfolio companies, Tempest, um, is actually founded by the founder of, of the fund I work for, Lightbank. And and one of the problem sets that they're attacking is actually the you know world of depression and, and mental health issues. And the fundamental premise of Tempest is that, and as I see it, and again, this is my interpretation, is that when folks go to clinicians, be it uh, an oncologist or a or a psychiatrist, post diagnosis they're largely treated like guinea pigs. It's hey here so okay so you have X, well, let's say you have clinical depression, um we're gonna try you on Lexapro, yeah. why eh, because I like Lexapro it's helped some of my patients I don't know just try it and if in three weeks you can't sleep you're miserable it's not helping whatever, well you know there's this one called Paxil, okay yeah well Paxil's kind of helping me but. Okay, well, let's just layer in some trazodone and we'll help you sleep. I know you can't sleep with it. Oh, well, that's a terrible, okay, well, tr- the point is you're, there are now ways through, you know, sequencing DNA and utilizing AI to better optimize that, that um, care process, where, whereby we can say, look, we think you're most likely to respond well to X drug. And I know I'm talking specifically about the, you know, the drug component of it, um, but I think that's where, where the world is heading with with precision care
1: um it seems to me that that's very similar to where some of the developments in cancer treatment are where where chronic conditions are managed basically with a pill by you know sequencing DNA and there's a lot more targeted um targeted treatment and I think the 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 sort of the one of the um, most contentious issues about medication is that there's a lack of understanding that it's right now an iterative process. And as you described, it's literally a trial and error process. It could take a year or more to get to the right mix of medications because therapists aren't using any sort of advanced data and not optimizing, you know, potentially information that would help them know what drugs target your mind or your brain or your conditions best. It's really, really alchemy right now. Yep. Yep. And, that,
0: and that's in, in 2020. Um, and so I think there's there's plenty of, of white space there. And you're going to see folks with, with expertise and knowledge and, and drive come in and fill that white space. And I think that all adds to all that's happening. And, one piece that you you did mention, and I, I do want to touch on it. Um, I apologize for not doing it before. Was that I know you and I had chatted about this on our on our previous call before this, the kind of prep call, is that in in my mind, and again, this is like a a, a hypothesis in some some ways, but I think we're starting to approve out. Is that I think what's going to happen in mental health care that's important. Um, is what I kind of call the, the verticalization of of, healthcare, of, of mental health care.
1: Yeah, um, and I'd like to explain what that means.
0: Definitely. Um, and so I guess in my mind, there's kind of two buckets of things I'd like to see in, in health care. One is like the, I know you and I talked about it before and I'm happy to touch on it here, but like the mental health, dental health component, why, why, why I think mental health should look like dental health and how we care for it. And then there's this verticalization piece that I view as inevitable, um, and the parallel I I, I make is um, with within at least from from my career. There's there's uh, a company called Salesforce, and I think a ton of folks know know Salesforce as you know the go to the the Google of CRMs. Um, and what's happened over the years is Salesforce has kind of been this horizontal player. You need a CRM, we are your go to player. Like come to to Salesforce, we got you. And it's not that that's not true. It's that, you know, over the years, folks have popped up vertically and have said, look, you're in venture capital, you're using Salesforce. That's crazy. You should be using us affinity. We are purpose built for you. Um, And so then a lot of VCs went, oh, yeah, that makes more sense. You know, I was messing around trying to customize Salesforce. And that was a headache. And I had to hire a consultant, like, affinity did everything I need. Boom, I'm, I'm working with affinity. And so I, the, the parallel I draw is to mental health. I think there's been a lot of players who have come out and said, not directly or overtly, but the, the offering is such that you have mental health issues, come to us. Well, schizophrenic, bipolar, um, you know, generalized anxiety, whatever it is, come and we'll help you. And by no way do I mean to say that's a negative dynamic. I just think it's V1 of, of mental health care. And V2 looks a lot more like affinity for, for, um, to Salesforce. Whereas I think you're going to have vertical uh, solutions come out in, in mental health that attack specific problem sets. And so I, you know, one example of that is a company actually based here in Chicago, that's called noCD and they are digital therapy for folks with, um, OCD. And so they've said, they've come out and been the premier platform solution for people who, who struggle with that specific disorder. And I think that trend is going to evolve and we'll see a lot of different um, specific subtypes of it.
1: Okay. So can, can you explain what you mean by digital therapy? Cause that's an interesting concept, but I don't think most people would, w- would be able to visualize that. Can you, can you contextualize it a little?
0: Sure. I, I think you had a, a tremendous call out earlier, um, which was, which was that we've seen this acceleration of willingness on clinicians' parts across the healthcare, you know, chasm, not just mental health care to, to adopt, um, you know, digital tools to, to work with the patients. Now, the reality is that was an evolving trend and you were like over the next 10, 15 years that was happening anyway, but COVID, it sounds weird to say, but the silver lining in in my mind within the mental health construct or within the healthcare construct is that people were forced to adopt technology like zoom and, and a variety of other, you know, uh, platforms and tools like like Blueprint, for example, to, to best care for their patients. any didn't have a choice. And so it's drastically accelerated the pace of adoption for, for things like that. And digital healthcare was something that already had some tailwinds, um, just not not so large. Um, but what it is is enabling a clinician or or a practitioner to meet with their patient the way you and I are meeting right now over over Zoom, over um, you know some sort of digital layer. As opposed to me driving 25 minutes into the city, paying for parking, coming to see you, um, potentially getting sick, God forbid, and, um, you know, it, it creates the the barrier to, to care is lower in digital care, A, because of what I just said, I don't need to come physically see you, and transportation actually is a major issue in healthcare, um, and a reason people don't get care, cost um you know the, the cost of actually you having overhead and you having an office and me coming to see you as a clinician and in theory that cost is the savings is passed on to to um patients um because cost is a major barrier to care and then stigma it's like if the the uh, sorry for rambling here but the the um parallel or, or the example that i draw is like if i were to say hey you know mark great appreciate podcast i gotta jump um it's You know i have a a a dentist appointment in in 10 minutes you'd probably not bat an eye you'd go oh cool whatever um you know it's great you probably a dental you certainly wouldn't go oh my god brad must have 10 root canals and 50 cavities um but if i said hey i have to jump i I have a a a therapy appointment not you specifically but i think a lot of people still today um are raising eyebrows and thinking "Mm, something must be must be wrong and so I, i tie that back into this because with digital care, you don't necessarily need, like there's less need to broadcast the fact that you're, you're, you're receiving that therapy. And so I think it lowers the barrier for people who still suffer from the, the stigma, unfortunately. To some extent, I think that's enabling um, because you should just not be embarrassed to say I see a therapist, but the reality is I'd rather enable some folks in that context, get them help um, and, and have more people be healthy.
1: Okay. Well, a couple couple of things. I don't know anyone who's ever sat in a therapist's office in their own city and said, God, I hope I don't run into my neighbor. <laughs> right. Um but but the the idea of um, ver, you know vertically focused digital care, and you referenced OCD as an example, it's not just the ability to access the these these providers through a digital medium but isn't it getting back to also making sure that within that digital medium are the types of providers that focus on that specialty because you talked a lot about the access to care but what what i'm trying to dig into is the granularity of the the vertical expertise
0: the I think the the onus and the responsibility ultimately it lies on both parties, the the clinician and the, the patient. But I think what you're relying on a company like NoCD, for example, for is to have curated folks who who are you know experts in that realm. And and I think it's probably difficult to find people who focus solely solely on OCD, but there are probably a handful and and even more than that of people who have some sort of focus on that OCD. It's like, look, I treat a variety of issues, but like my core competency or what I went to school for, or the most patients I treat is with OCD. And so that's ultimately a barrier that some, some, a company like NoCD has to, to mitigate, which is like, wait, are people going to believe us that we have the best curated OCD practitioners? And it's a totally fair question to be asking.
1: Okay. So then the next question is, is sort of the clinician um, solution provider business model. Is it is it an instance where practices are going to become owned by these providers, or is it they're going to create sort of a, a, a consortium or mm-hmm. um, or a, a preferred panel, if you will, of providers with the specialty to facilitate all the mechanics of payment, billing, insurance? Yeah. Um, and and I I I I, I kind of. Um, I kind of draw my question from a podcast I listened to with the founder of two chairs out in Silicon Valley, where they were really doing, you know, they really had an intake process to gather information in order to potentially connect you with the right providers. And then they were actually physically providing office space and other things. So is this, is this a circumstance where you'll see mental health healthcare providers like much like what's going on with dentistry, healthcare, even veterinary medicine where companies are buying practices or is this going to be more like um, a neural network, so to speak? My thought is that when I hear that question, I think about kind of the
0: different buckets I've been seeing in in this world. And I think, and, and I mean that in the context of what I see people building, um, I think the the kind of the four buckets, and there might be more, and there's probably sub buckets here, but um, you have folks who are are focused on matching. And so, if I go out and start a company, my goal is not to actually hire and bring internally, you know, my own clinicians um, and start a, a practice, so to speak, but more so to serve as as lead gen to existing practices. And so, Mark, let's say you're, you're a clinician, you come onto my, or you sign up to my platform. The idea is that I'm gonna start sending you patients who come in, that's kind of a marketplace um, model. And so the the second, I guess the, to take it one step further, not better or worse necessarily, but are companies who are actually bringing in, onboarding, training their own clinicians. And so they want to be sort of this digitally enabled um, 21st century clinic, um, and so I think that's that's a little bit more onerous of a, a, a task for a variety of reasons, um, and and then I think there are companies, startups, tech, you know, tech that is facilitating what what is supposedly a a, a trend, a megatrend, um, and I think we we are starting to see it. The question is how big is it? But it's burned out clinicians. Let's let's not forget that clinicians are, are human beings too, who are seeing eight patients a day sometimes and hearing you know gruesome, disturbing, and, or just you know hard to, to digest things all day and then being relied on for support. And so I, from what I hear, there's, there's a lot of burnout at, at mid-sized clinics amongst clinicians. And so consequently, you see a lot of clinicians wanting to start their own solo practices. Well, the inherent barrier there is something you described is, is the back office. It's like all the administration associated with that. Um, everything from spinning up an LLC to doing your taxes to, um, you know, compliance and, and billing and payers. So there's so much. And so you're starting to see companies too that come, come to mind that I chatted with are, are Frame and, and Grow Therapy that are actually there's helping back them. Back
1: office for solo providers, a back office type situation where yep. they provide that practice support. Yeah, exactly.
0: So they, they enable someone to go out on their own um, and, and really do, you know, continue offering their, their services, but handle a lot of the backend administrative, you know, the, the business side of things, if you will. Um, and so, you know, you, they ultimately match you with clients as well. But the, the kind of the core thing is like, you could go out and get all these different point solutions, but what they'll do is kind of aggregate those all for you. Um, so there's a couple folks in, in, in that space. And I think we'll see more and more as, as time goes on. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's the consolidation of, of clinics, which I think has been a trend for a while, you know, right. either PE bought clinics and, and they roll them up or, you know, regional folks who, who merge. Um, and I don't expect that to, to go. Away. I think those folks will be increasingly, um, forward-thinking and innovative about adopting technology, if for nothing else, their bottom line.
1: This has been um, a terrific discussion. As we end, I want to kind of know what you see is um, the potential magnitude of investment that's going to come to um, the area of mental health solutions, treatment, in terms of technology investment. Do you see this as... um, Kind of a capitated market, or do you see that there's the possibility for um, considerable growth and in investment dollars flowing in?
0: I think um, most certainly the latter. I think we will we will continue to see um, a ton of money poured into to this trend because, from just putting the VC hat on for a sec, it's like the the market is enormous and growing. There's there's latent demand. Um, and, and the, the dynamic that I observe is such that there's, you know, the, the stat that a lot of folks references, one in five people started with mental health, um, in the U S and, and, you know, could use some care. The reality is that as stigma depletes, which is a mega trend we're seeing that is accelerated by COVID, you will see more folks go out and and be that demand. And so yeah. it's yeah. already a huge market.
1: That um, That's interesting because, um. My own therapist was saying that as this um, as this sort of remote schooling has taken hold, her practice has seen, you know, potentially a 30% uptick with the vast majority of those being middle school and high school students, uh, oh, yeah. you know, who are, um, who are, you know, in need of, of, of therapeutic services to deal with all the ramifications of remote schooling. And, yeah. and for the listeners, I'm not advocating against or for remote schooling. It's just a reality that has, you know, positives and negatives. And some of the negatives happen to be how the impact of not being in a, a school or campus like social environment impacts the well-being of the students. Yep.
0: Undeniable. And I think that's another example of how a verticalization within mental health care could pop up. You know, we focus on, on students specifically, high school students, middle school students, whatever it is. And so I think there's, I would be absolutely shocked if we don't continue to climb in scale as, as far as hitting records. And I, I know we certainly did this year, um, you know, probably largely driven by, by the pandemic demand, but I think there was, there was a total of like one point three seven billion dollars through the third quarter of twenty twenty um, that has gone to US mental health care startups and that outpaced you know not 2019 which I think was closer to 1.6 billion 1.06 billion um and, and from from my reading and, and research investment in the space has quadrupled since 2015 and so well, you, you
1: know, raised you, a, have- you raised a really fascinating point which is the destigmatization which has almost become a necessity because of the pandemic, where it's perfectly acceptable to have you know um, mental health issues given everything we've gone through, actually puts pressure and more um more torque on the existing care system. And it requires investment because the demand for services is only going to go up as we get further destigmatized. Absolutely, and I
0: think you even need to look at that from the lens of the supply side of the marketplace. Uh, I know in the piece that Patrick and I wrote, we, we did like a little, hey, we'd love to see someone build this, which is, um, I don't know if you're familiar with like a, a Lambda school for therapists, Lambda school helps train um, coders, developers, but the, the, the point is that with all the surge in demand, you're already seeing, you know, strains put on the system, and I think it's only going to get, grow larger that demand as Depletion and stigma unlocks demand, depletion and cost of care unlocks demand, digital therapy. Unlocks. And so, um, yeah, I think you need to be looking at it from both angles.
1: And I think one of the interesting things is, is it's going to spur my guess. Again, I am not a doctor either. This is just yakino blathering to you. Is My guess is there's going to be an increased push for more licensed social workers and more um, more front-level clinicians and better training for physician's assistants on sc- on screening and referral because the lead time to produce, for lack of a better word, a licensed social worker is sometimes faster than the lead time to produce a clinical, a fully trained clinical mm. psychologist. Yeah. And we need more uh, a frontline treatment Workers and more more skilled triage frontline treat, treatment workers that can help facilitate um, more um, more levels of care if it's needed. I I could not agree more with that statement. I think
0: though the last thing I'll, I'll you know call out is that in in that that analogy they make of mental hair, mental health like dental health, um, if we want to start treating mental health like dental health, we need to start treating it preventatively. And if we're doing that, you're going and seeing your, your dentist or your, your, your mental health clinician two to three times a year. And if that's a reality, we need a hell of a lot more clinicians with a hell of a lot more availability to be able to do that preventative work so that we can, we can finally start to treat people um, not when they're, they're ready to jump over the edge um, and, and, and really just struggling and in a terrible place, but let's help them not get there. And that will actually reduce costs on the system and payers should be investing in that in my mind. And, and so I'm excited to see that.
1: Wellness. Say it one more time. I call it pre-crisis wellness. There you go. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Well, listen, you've been a terrific guest, very genu- genu- generous with your time. Um, can you give the website for LightBank so people can begin to, to look at some of the things you're investing in?
0: Sure. It's Pretty simple. Just lightbank.com. Check us out there, check us out on Twitter uh, and feel free to reach out.
1: And Brad, I'm going to be, um, now that now that I've decided you're my friend, whether you want to be or not. <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to be asking you to help me find additional interesting guests. And um, I'm going to revisit with you in a year and see how the investment um, in mental health solutions has gone. So I can't be more grateful to have you as a guest. You've been terrific thank you very much. And I think our audience is really going to get a unique um, view on the mental health issues we're facing, because I don't think we've really talked enough about investment in, 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 in optimization of therapies through technology.
0: Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com.